it's really interesting when you start to think about not only the gender dynamics, but the power dynamics within a company and how that can play out when it comes to supporting a female manager, whether that's in an instance where there are microaggressions or actually pervasive sexual harassment, not only from the side of things where you are sexually harassing somebody, it's just such a complex landscape. Diversity of ideas is harder than it looks. Welcome to Innovation for All, conversations on the social impact of innovation with your host, Shayna Alquist. Welcome to this week's episode of Innovation for All. I am your host, Shayna Alquist. Before we get to today's episode, a quick announcement. Our latest episode actually went to number one on the front page of Hacker News. So if you haven't had a chance to check out that episode, it's called Google and Facebook are Monopolies, Does It Matter? And it features the Capital Forum's antitrust expert, Sally Hubbard. It's a really cool episode. I think that's why it's resonated with so many people. We raise lots of interesting points and a lot of interesting questions. I think you'll enjoy it. And with that, I welcome you to today's episode. So in this episode, I spoke with Morgan Mercer, founder of Vantage Point, the VR-based enterprise training company. Vantage Point's suite of immersive training tools is initially aimed at tackling anti-sexual harassment training with plans of expansion into unconscious bias and managerial training. Essentially, it's virtual reality training that helps prevent sexual harassment on the job. Morgan was recently regarded as one of the top 10 female tech innovators in history by Tech Radar. And she's been featured in dozens of publications, including Wired, The Guardian, and NPR. This conversation is really interesting. So one of my broad criticisms about virtual reality is that the people creating it are creating it sort of for fun and that it may not have lots of practical uses. Even those who try to make it for good, end up putting the burden of interest on someone who may not be interested. One of the things that I think is so interesting about Vantage Point is they're able to circumvent that self-selection risk by doing workplace training against sexual harassment. What I think is even more cool than that is that virtual reality training actually makes sense here. It's not just something that they threw in for show. Rather, people are able to actually practice being in a situation where they can learn how to recognize what sexual harassment looks like and able to practice ahead of time in a low stakes scenario what the best way to move forward with that actually is. I think you're going to find Morgan to be super smart and interesting. She grew up in the South with a relatively limited view of the world and that all began to change when she overstepped a boundary and deeply offended a close immigrant friend. I found her to be very forthcoming in this interview and I hope you enjoy it. And one last programming note, no, we did not tape this in a cave, but unfortunately the studio we had planned to record in was not available at the last minute. So I hope you forgive a little bit of echo. And with that, please enjoy my conversation with Morgan Mercer. Morgan Mercer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Shana. Nice to be here. So I was hoping we could start off by just the brief version of what is Vantage Point? Yes. So Vantage Point is the next frontier in immersive enterprise training. And what that actually means is that we're leveraging emerging technologies such as standalone virtual reality to provide training that's impactful around problems that matter. So we're actually starting with anti-sexual harassment training initially, and then we're planning on tackling unconscious bias training next. Oh, very cool. Okay. So essentially using HR in an immersive way to solve these sort of HR problems. Absolutely. So rather than me coming in and speaking at you for two hours about something and it having absolutely no situational relevance, what we're actually doing is we are immersing you in these stories and in these, you know, immersive environments. And we're showing you how your actions can positively and negatively influence the environment around you. Okay. Well, so, and I was hoping we could back up and talk a little bit about your first sort of experience with caring about these kinds of issues in a practical sort of adult way. Yeah, absolutely. So my story is really twofold, I would say. First and foremost, what I would say is that I am a biracial female. I grew up in the South. My mother is a very strong Democrat. My dad is a very strong Republican. My dad voted for Trump. My mom, you know, is used to campaign for the Democratic Party. So I definitely had a variety of opinions that I grew up with, but I did grow up in a small town in North Carolina. So it was still predominantly conservative. 
And as a child, you know, you hear a variety of things positioned in different ways, but because it becomes almost so conditioned, you don't realize that those are the views that you then reflect onto society. And the way that you view certain things can really play out in a pervasive manner in the way that you treat other individuals. And so it actually wasn't until I was in university and I moved abroad to Italy and I befriended somebody who was ethnically Ethiopian, but she was born in Sweden. And, you know, she was the first person to ever challenge the way I viewed the world. And I remember one day we were coming back on a train. We had taken a trip to Cinque Terre and I made a really ignorant statement about immigration. It was really ignorant, but I positioned it as a joke and obviously, you know, laughed it off. And I almost half expected her to go along with it because I think that's what I had just become so accustomed to growing up. And she became personally offended to the point where she was hurt, you know, visibly and and to the point where she didn't want to become want to be friends with me. You know, but beyond that, she was like, I'm really surprised that you would make such an ignorant statement. I really expected more from you. And so that was really impactful for me because I sat there and I actually I couldn't just obviously say, hey, I'm sorry, let's be friends again. I couldn't do that. And so I had to sit there at least for, you know, a couple of days and really think through like, wow, I just hurt her. Why would I say that? Why did I feel that? How did that, you know, manifest itself in my interaction with my friend before I could even write an apology to her? And she and I are now friends. But that really made me think about how we can become so conditioned and just not even realize it, you know, and as a biracial female, I'm thinking there's no way I have any of these views. Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm completely free from them, but turns out I'm not. And so for the next four and a half years, I just became obsessed with the research and re- obsessed with the data. And so I started reading about how things become almost systematic and institutionalized and how the statistics really aren't in the favor of minority groups and how gender stereotyping came to be. I became obsessed with that and kind of how it's subliminally woven into our society. And along that way, I started volunteering at organizations. I befriended the former director of criminal justice standards, and she became a mentor to me. She did a lot of pro bono work. A lot of it was oriented around gender-based violence and women and domestic abuse. And so she was giving a TED talk at, you know, TEDx Monaco. And the theme is, what is your revolution? And she was talking about women as weapons of war. So I go into this TEDx talk and on the board, I literally write, you know, under what is your revolution? I want to reduce societal apathy by reducing barriers towards understanding using technology. Long sentence, had no idea what it meant. I mean, I knew what it meant, but I didn't know in actuality how I was going to actualize that. And so after her TEDx talk, we're sitting around a table, respective thought leaders. Well, can you um, can you back up and say yeah. the TED talk? Can you talk a little bit more about what, yeah. what that meant? Yeah, absolutely. So the TED talk was on women as weapons of war, right? And so she was speaking about how women are actually used as weapons, right? And, and how women are almost don't have value in that sense. Um, they're either seen as a weapon against another party or they're either seen as, you know, a body that can then be used or disposed of or whatever it may be to torture another party, like mentally torture another party. And so it's almost like women aren't valued, right? It's not almost like women aren't valued. It's quite literally women are not valued except for their use as it falls on either side. And so I'm sitting at the private dinner and obviously the conversation kind of gravitates towards that. And so we're talking about gender-based violence. And then we start kind of going from there. And I'm sitting with men and women who are twice my age and thought leaders, very well respected. And what I realized is that, you know, nobody can actually identify intervention points. A lot of times when people do, it's way too late. And, you know, when people identify them, they don't know what to do. And so I guess I slept on it a week later. I woke up with the idea for this company and it was such a feeling of conviction of, you know, this is something I, I feel can change the problem or change the direction of the problem. And then from there, I've been obsessed with it. So oh, man, that's awesome. Why do you think you were willing to make that shift from just thinking about it and even feeling like you had a solution to then executing on it? Yeah, that's a great question. I have really personal ties to it as well, you know, two-time survivor of sexual violence. And I think 
one of the biggest realizations I came to before Me Too was that, you know, anytime I would talk about what happened to my friends, all of my girlfriends would say, yeah, Me Too, (laughs) before Me Too, right? They would say, yeah, Me Too, but I realized women don't speak out unless they speak out in unison. And so a lot of that really has to do with how we approach the topic, you know, how we talk about the topic, how we treat women, and then also kind of the fact that we really don't have any consequences in place. And we really don't, as humans, understand the consequences of our actions because people learn by doing. And unfortunately, that's really costly, you know, emotionally, financially in in these cases now, you know. So as I continue to think about it and just kind of like dilly dally, I taught myself how to code. I went to hackathons. I was soft pitching it. All no big deal. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. I do the same thing in my free time. <laughs> well, you know, I, I was kind of, I love learning, but um, as I was doing all of that, it was just kind of a pressing feeling of, I was working for a startup and, and not saying anything about the startup. I love the company, but I feel like a lot of technology companies always say that they're changing the world or making the world a better place. But, you know, even if that's one of their values, it's not truly ingrained in what the company does. And a friend who is a really good mentor asked me, is this your company or is this a hobby? And that to me was just kind of, do you care about it enough to take it seriously? Are you just going to talk about how passionate you are and not do anything? So so was that conversation like a turning point? Yeah, pretty much. And then I decided to go to OC4, where I ended up meeting a ton of thought leaders. And what is OC4? Oculus Connect 4. So it's Facebook's huge VR conference. And I ended up meeting like some of the most prominent thought leaders in the industry and ironically, as I was there, a small article broke on my company and I had been pitching media in the background and nobody we cover because it was pre-Me Too and it was pre-standalone virtual reality. And article broke on my company. You know, I actually posted it on my LinkedIn and deleted my boss from my LinkedIn because I didn't want her to know. And then I get back to Washington, D.C. and she was like, I noticed you deleted me from LinkedIn and I know about your company. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my gosh, now I have to choose. <laughs> so this is like a legitimate side hustle at this point of like yeah. like worker by day and then secret entrepreneur by night. I was literally waking up like three hours before I was going to work to work. And then I was coming back and I was staying up till 1 a.m. to work. And I was actually using some of my money to employ friends and like interns to do things for me on the side. And obviously my friends had jobs too. So they weren't telling anyone. They just wanted to help me. And then I legitimately had to make a choice. So, yeah. Oh, man. Well, and I'd love to walk through, so vantage point, like I'd love to walk through the experience of what it is to use the product and how it feels and maybe an example scenario. Yeah, absolutely. So where would you like to start? (laughs) Uh, So let's talk about the experience of using, I guess, would you call it the software? The technology. The technology. Okay. So if I'm stepping into my, my first experience with the technology, What am I seeing? What am I doing? Yeah, absolutely. So what's really interesting about the way we design our product is that we understand it's not one size fits all. And obviously you can't just move existing training to a new medium and expect it to be more effective. So we really took a very different approach in the way that we built everything out. And it's built to be almost kind of customizable down to what the employee needs or what the manager needs. So you can quite literally say, you know, I'm Shana, I want my employees to focus on empathy and bias. And I really want that to be reinforcing bystander intervention. So we've designed things in a way where certain experiences will correspond to drive the topic home, but they can also be standalone in and of themselves. Well, so just real quick, um, I want to back up to the customization being super cool, but can you talk about the bystander intervention and what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So for bystander intervention, you are quite literally immersed in an environment and things start to happen and, and it starts off a little more subtle at first and then it builds up. So it's a lot more true to life to the way that things actually happen. So So are you telling me that most sexual harassment (laughs) does not look like an old stodgy man walking into your office, sitting on your desk and saying, sit in my lap, honey? Yes. Sorry to shatter whatever expectations you have, but yes, absolutely I am. So a lot of times things start off a lot more subtle at first and then they build up. And what we're trying to show the goal here is that if you step in sooner, the situation is better. If you step in later, it's better than not doing anything. But you could still improve. And so we use branching narrative storylines starts off subtle. If you step in, you know, you'll literally have a colleague maybe to your right who's messaging you and saying, hey, she looks a little uncomfortable by that joke. 
Do you think it's cool? Is it fine? Almost egging you along to try and see if you're going to go along with it. And you have the opportunity to say, yeah, she looks uncomfortable. Let's check in with her. Or no, I think it's totally cool. Like, who cares? And based on the action you take, the storyline changes. So again, we're reinforcing, we're using positive and negative reinforcement to show you how your actions can change the narrative. Okay. So it sounds like you're using much more true to life scenarios. And then you're actually getting one of the big benefits of VR is that you're now experiencing like consequences in a different way than you would in a, like an HR pamphlet. Exactly. And so again, going back to the feeling of, or the whole premise of people not being able to see the consequences of their actions, you can now actually see how your action can change things. And when we went through the content review process, we actually went through nine content revisions and then three, actually four employment law revisions. We brought in subject matter experts from the DNI space, from um, the cognitive sciences space, from the gender-based violence space, and, and the communication space as well. So being very trauma-informed in the communication strategy. And what we did was we interviewed people who had spoken out and said that they had gone through, you know, and been survivors of sexual harassment. We spoke to lawyers and talked about case law and we read a ton of stories. And so literally every single line is based on something that's actually said. So none of it's supposed to be cheesy. It's all supposed to be something that you could truly envision somebody realistically saying. Wow. So let's walk through an example scenario. Yes, absolutely. We have a ton of great ones, but... One that I'll speak to that I actually haven't spoken to historically or, or before is a scenario with Jim and Nina. And so you have this environment or, or this office party. And, and I think the thing about office parties is that you have a line that inherently overlaps personal and professional. And that's a line that many people don't know how to successfully cross. Right. And so you have an office party unfolds and you have an incumbent female manager who's actually leaving for another company. And then you have kind of like this boisterous, very confident, suave male manager who manages a team, but it's in a different department. And you have this new female manager who's about to take the former manager's place, you know, overseeing this other department. And so as the party is going on, you know, this boisterous male manager is giving a speech and he's like, oh, I'm so glad that I'm taking your place. I'm looking forward to overseeing. We're going to miss you. You are the mom of our group, you know, so kind of putting her down in a way that's not unnormal. Yeah. <laughs> so wait, can you say more about like, not to sound thick, but like what yeah. was wrong with that? So calling her the mom of the group. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's almost marginalizing her, right? It's marginalizing her. It's taking away her credibility. It's taking away her sense of professionalism and her credibility for what she's done and the impact she has from a professional standpoint. And unfortunately, that's something that frequently occurs, you know, anytime somebody speaks about a woman tying her professional capability to her looks or her aesthetics or how great of a parent she is, you know, it's surprising she can also be a mom and be a leader of a company. Anything like that really discredits the woman's professional capabilities and it really doesn't serve to create an equitable workforce. And so it starts off with that, you know, on the subtle side. And then as it builds up, you see that Nina. So when you say as it builds up, do you mean like within the same speech or like later in the experience? Throughout. So it starts off subtle and he's making all of these comments. And then you see that Nina steps up and then he kind of starts to, you know, get a little close to Nina. And he's like, congrats, let me take you out to lunch to celebrate. It's like, is this okay? I don't know. And depending on the actions that you take and whether you say, hey, this looks wrong, you know, I, I feel like something's off here. Or if you say, oh, it's cool, it's just Jim being Jim. So this is you, the bystander. So exactly. this is like a third party observing this interaction. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so you're sitting here and you're like, oh, no, it's just Jim being Jim. It's cool. We're at a work party, whatever. Everyone's celebrating. He's just being his suave self. Or, you know, it's like, no, that's weird. Yeah. And so what are those options? So at that yeah. point, like you see this unfold. Yeah. And then it sounds like there's a break in the action and yeah. the user is prompted to make like, a decision about how they interact. Yeah. And so it's interesting the way that we prompted the user, you know, again, wanting to create the maximum sense of immersion and presence and not break it with a UI overlay, which is what a lot of companies, a lot of training programs will do is you actually have a cell phone. And so you're receiving a text message in bystander intervention, or sometimes you can call and you can actually report things or have conversations. So basically you have another person to your left who's texting you and he's saying, hey, this is a little weird. He looks like he's getting close and you're saying, oh no, he's just had too much to drink. It's cool. Or it's like, it's just Jim being Jim. Or it's like, yeah, you know, 
It's a little odd that he's asking her out for lunch, but they're all supposed to be things that anybody could reasonably think. And so it's not supposed to be something that's very black or white. It's supposed to be something that literally makes you think. But the beauty is that the details are in the nuances, right? And that really does show how perceptive you are to things like this. And so then the storyline unfolds and then we have escalates so to... at that point, are you making a choice? Like I'm yeah. in a text or I'm in a... Yeah, okay. Exactly. And so you're literally like answering them. You're saying, no, it's cool. Like Jim's had too much to drink. And then Jim gets a little bit more persistent, you know, and a little bit more pervasive. And then you get to a point where Nina literally just has an emotional breakdown. And she's like, I can handle this myself. I'm your manager. It's not your place to step in. And that's in the corresponding empathy one. And that's very true because I feel like a lot of women in managerial roles want to appear strong. So they don't want to speak out about things like this. Mm. And so that's trying to shift people's minds to looking at this as it's okay. A female manager, a female leader asks for help. Don't blame her or have bias against her for it. So there's a lot in there. Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) A lot in there. (laughs) No. And I mean, even thinking about if you're a subordinate and you bring this up and she acts in this defensive way, like that doesn't feel good. And especially if we think about sexual harassment, having to do with differences in power and fear Mm -hmm. of losing your job, that feels like a place I wouldn't want to be. Yeah. So Exactly. What do we do with that? (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. But, you know, what I think was most interesting to me, not most interesting, every I find a lot of things interesting. But, you know, when I was actually going through the research and I've gone through like 70 scholarly articles, you know, I've gone through plenty. Women in positions of power are 138% more likely to have aggressive sexual actions displayed against them. So, Essentially, if I am a female leader, I'm 138% more likely than my female subordinate to be sexually harassed. And so it's really interesting when you start to think about not only the gender dynamics, but the power dynamics within a company and how that can play out when it comes to supporting a female manager, whether that's in an instance where there are microaggressions or actually pervasive sexual harassment, not only from the side of things where you are sexually harassing somebody, it's just such a complex landscape. Wow. And I mean, as you say that, it makes sense then that you'd want to walk through these complexities in a nuanced, Mm -hmm. comprehensive, realistic way. Exactly. And not like a, which do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Because the staunchy generic answers can never truly hit on this. Well, and I think it's interesting too, to put people in perspective where they see how easy it would be to do nothing and to call attention to the yeah. fact like, oh, by the way, now, exactly. now is a time you could do something. Exactly. And so there are some times when it's, let's not get into this now, or you know that she has a temper, I don't want to lose my job, or whatever it may be, like answers like that, where you have an easy opt out in the sense of a lot of times people will opt out, especially if you're non-confrontational. And I, I think almost like the second interesting thing that we need to touch on is that People have different levels of extroversion versus introversion and conflict avoidance versus conflict awareness. And so, like, I am an extrovert. If I see something, I typically don't like conflict, but I'll still speak up. But um, people who are socially shy, which is actually different from being introverted, but even introverts might be a little bit less prone to, you know, jumping into a conflict. And so that's going to influence the way that people respond. And being able to take that into account in the material that we're designing and the training program we're designing is going to have a greater impact than assuming that training is one size fits all and there's one correct way to deal with the situation. Can we walk through another example scenario? Yeah, no, absolutely. So we have another one and it's actually also one of my favorite ones where you have, you know, Rachel and then her boss. And so they're all sitting here and and Rachel's sitting around. She's like reviewing these projections and preparing for a presentation that they're having at a conference with her two male colleagues. And so they're sitting there, they're reviewing, they're talking about Vegas because that's where the conference is going to be. And, you know, they start kind of talking about like their plans for Vegas and all of like the cool parties that are happening after the conference because every conference is really oriented (laughs) around parties, you know. (laughs) to the point where I've actually seen it on conference agendas. Yeah, Um, yeah. You know, so they're discussing that and then the boss comes out and he sits, you know, right next to Rachel. And again, it's being able to create that feeling where there's almost like an elephant in the room feeling of he's sitting just a couple inches too close, you know, Mm -hmm. and really leaning into a personal space. And, And when you can feel that, you feel uncomfortable as the viewer and you're like, wow, how do I get this to stop? 
Well, and I can imagine like the experience of being immersed in virtual reality and seeing that even sounds different than what you're saying. I'm like, is that a little too close to or sounds kind of cliche, but I could imagine that if you saw someone walk in and do that, you would be like, that's weird. Exactly. And it would be just like somebody else watching me and I scoot up next to you and I'm three inches away Mm -hmm. and they would feel really uncomfortable because it's that feeling, you know? And so as it progresses, he starts to like, he'll grab her arm and pull her back when she's trying to pass the financial projections and say, let me see. He individually asks her, you know, are you bringing anybody like a boyfriend? You know, when they're talking about their discussions around planning the hotel, he says, you know, I should really take you to this restaurant in New York. I think you'll really like it. And the other two employees are sitting there and they're kind of like, okay, (laughs) you know, whatever. Because again, it's just kind of like that very toxic masculinity oriented culture. And I think that's really true to a lot of industries. So this all unfolds. What is the user then prompted to do? Yeah. Or like, when does the system intervene? So the system intervenes pretty much at every interaction point. So there are interaction points broken into basically every moment where you should step in and say something. So there are interaction points programmed into pretty much every intervention point. And that's, again, to go back and show the user, here are the possible intervention points leading up to what we would call quid pro quo sexual harassment. When you see these actions, here's where you can step in and do something. And here's how to effectively do it. And so some of the intervention points are, you know, let's redirect the conversation or hey, let's check in with her after this meeting and make sure she's okay. So then putting the power in her hands where she can go to HR if she wants to, you're not taking the power out of her hands to unfold the situation. Some of the answer choices juxtapose that, what I just told you with, let's go to HR, you know, Mm. which isn't a bad answer choice. And then there are some that are like, we should really stick to prepping the materials. And then you send that and your colleague will literally say that back and be like, hey, let's let's focus on the conference. So basically every action you take doesn't just branch the storyline, but the other characters, you'll start to see them step in more so because you're texting the other characters in the environment. So it's really trying to reinforce this idea of collective accountability where if I hold you accountable, you're more likely to act in a way that's in line with what we expect, the, the bar of expectations and vice versa. Wow. And I even think if it were me, the woman being in the situation, and then I stepped out and someone asked me. So I could imagine that I think as women, we second guess ourselves a lot for these kinds of subtle social interactions. Mm -hmm. Um, To then walk out of that room Mm -hmm. when you feel like that was kind of weird, but maybe I'm crazy. If my male colleague then said like, hey, that seemed a little weird. I'd be like, thank you. Yeah. Oh my God. Like I'm not, I'm not imagining. I think that would be very validating. Even if I didn't move forward with that, it would make me feel a little bit like, oh, we're all living in the same reality. Yeah. And that's the goal is to create kind of this, again, sense of collective accountability where everybody's holding each other accountable. Everybody has the same moral guidelines (laughs) that they're trying to um, abide by. And even if you choose not to move forward, you should still say something. Like if I see something, I should still say something to you just so you know that you do have the support you need if you were to move forward. Because a lot of times people don't move forward out of fear of retaliation or, you know, whether that comes from your manager or from your colleagues. And I think that creating that environment where we're all supporting one another in this will help prevent a lot of this because it helps weed out the behavior. And I think it's interesting, too, that it sounds like a lot of what you're teaching people isn't just how to behave correctly, quote unquote, but also like now is a time. Exactly. Now is the time you could say something to identify. Here's a time point when you could intervene. Here's a time point when you could intervene. Exactly. Because I find that even if we know we're supposed to do these things, like we know we're supposed to say, if you see something, say something. Yeah. You don't always do it the first time. Yeah. I personally feel good about like when I, I try to negotiate whenever I can. So when I go to garage sales, I'm like, now's my chance to negotiate. I love it. (laughs) And what's interesting is I almost never do, but I, I know that I should. And like, I'm, even though I I haven't done it much, like I'm practicing knowing that I should and walking away feeling like, damn it, I didn't do it this time, but I'll do it next time. And, and I think there's something about, even if you're not doing it correctly, to be aware that you should or could exactly. is important. And to yeah. have that take place in virtual space instead of actual space yeah. is like a great improvement. Yeah, absolutely. And mm-hmm. it's a great opportunity to learn without, again, having those really negative emotional consequences that we can have. 
Well, and I was going to say, what does the worst case scenario look like at the end of the scenario? So like every time your your yeah. colleague interview asks you like, hey, should we help? You're like, nah, not yeah. going to help. Like at the end, does she die? Like, what? No, you know? no, but it, it gets really uncomfortable because you are, again, you're not just watching it on a screen. You quite literally feel like you're there. And I've had times when I was reviewing the content or reviewing the materials where I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm tearing up because you can quite literally see like, okay, she has an emotional breakdown, you know, and you can see how it mentally affects her and prevents her from doing her job or this scenario where she literally is like frozen and literally doesn't know what to do, you know, and she looks like she's almost helpless because she's, there are people here and they're not giving her support or validation. Or we even have a scene where, and this is more so oriented around harassment around sexual orientation, but you have this male colleague who's gay and he's sitting there and he's literally like, end of his wits frustrated and he's like sitting at a table and and you can see it in his eyes he's like almost pleading you for help and because you can quite literally see it through somebody's body language and it feels like they're right next to you it is so emotionally pulling even if somebody's not dying <laughs> it has a really big emotional impact wow so. i almost wonder if people are more willing to trust the experience because of that what do you mean? Like you're not making a big dramatic statement like, and that's yeah. why she died yeah. because of you, yeah. Billy. And it's yeah. like, okay, yeah. HR software, yeah. I roll. Yeah. I mean, the goal of the experience is to, again, create things that are, are, are true to life, but can truly show you the emotional impact. Well, one thing I'd love to ask you about is, so we're talking a lot about the third person experience of like, yeah. you're watching something uncomfortable unfold. Yeah. How much thought have you put behind doing a first person perspective? And Absolutely. it sounds like- maybe you haven't done that and why? Absolutely. So we would never do a first person sexual harassment, you know, simulation or experience. The reason being that, you know, a lot of the research coming out about virtual reality is its efficacy. And, and that efficacy is based in the feeling of immersion and the feeling of presence, right? And so immersion and presence in a first person sexual harassment simulation can quite literally re-traumatize you or bring up trauma that you didn't even know you had. And I think there's a huge issue with the fact that we still haven't even addressed this problem. So there's a ton of trauma that's buried down there and, you know, it could have the same adverse effects. So we would never even consider it. And I think that there are much more ethical and, and better ways of leveraging the technology to create the desired outcomes than to put somebody in a first person sexual harassment simulation. I think that that would almost be not taking advantage of the technology to its fullest capacity. And do people propose that suggestion a lot? Yeah, I've actually had an interview with a different publication and they did a supporting interview with, ironically, a man. <laughs> and he proposed that and he was like, I think it'd be really impactful, right? But when you truly think about the trauma it causes and the ways that we've had to cover that up, imagine being placed into that environment with a headset on your face and you know that, you know, if you take off the headset... It's showing everybody else that you're uncomfortable, which shows everybody else that you've gone through it. Oh, so geez. it's almost like double trauma. So I think that it is one of the worst misuses of the technology that mm -hmm. we could ever do. Well, and I think there's two ways to read part of that. Yeah. So I'm thinking about like the man suggested it. And yeah. I think one way is to say men don't have empathy for this experience because they mm -hmm. haven't lived it, which... You research at, supports. Okay, yeah. And I mean, you could look at that in a, in a generous way or an ungenerous way. Right? Yeah. But then there's also the second piece of as someone who isn't in that position of powerlessness, there might be something more interesting to gain from it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I completely agree. I think that there is a lot more to gain from it. And I think that, you know, just by flipping the coin, you're still not necessarily doing enough to reposition the way that somebody mm. views the topic. So that might give them like empathy and understanding, but that's not actually a skill set. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, I would say empathy and understanding is a skill set, well, but it's not the only skill set we need yeah. to address this. Henry Ford once said, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Sounds like Ford hired a bad user researcher. PhD Insights is different. They help understand the attitudes and motivations that underlie what customers claim. And this is good for business. So if your company isn't adding attitudinal feedback to their data pipeline, they're missing half the story. 
Learn how PhD Insights can help your company with pricing, product strategy, and positioning by visiting phdinsights.com. That's phd-insights.com. I wanted to ask you, we're seeing the shift in the culture, right? Where suddenly I think women are getting a voice in a different way. We're seeing the rise of Me Too. We're seeing men experience consequences for, for bad behavior. At the same time, I'm noticing that men, by that I mean, I would say male allies. So people that I would traditionally consider to be feminists, supportive of women, are starting to get really uncomfortable with the way things are going in a way that makes them feel defensive. What do we do with that? Like, should we care? Should we address that? Do we have empathy for that? I'm just wondering how you think about those things. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's something that's come up with a lot of the companies that we've met with. And as you said, it is something that we're seeing. You know, men are starting to say, well, I don't want to mentor women because I don't know if my behaviors are going to be perceived this way or, you know, I don't want any chance of my behaviors being perceived this way, whatever it may be, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and I think that ultimately that has such a negative impact on what we're trying to do that we really do need to bring this to the front of the conversation because what we're discussing is human interaction, right? And so we need to be discussing not only the ways that we shouldn't be interacting, but also the ways that we should be interacting. And we need to be aligning that within the context of how can men be allies in this? Because ultimately, and unfortunately, a lot of men are leaders, right? And and a lot of men are going to be people who are sitting around the table that need to be bought in to drive the needle forward on this. And I think that men are bought in, but we're almost starting to create that sense of fear, right? And so we need to be able to equip men with the tools they need to be allies around this. I'm glad you agree. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I absolutely do. And, and I've had this conversation so many times. No, and I, and I get like, I think I do see too that there's a moment now where people are like all swept in, like, we don't have to care what men think anymore. And it's yeah. like, yeah, I hear you, but also they're people and yeah. we, we live with each other yeah. and, and yeah. We're, what, we're one society. And- yeah. And, and ultimately we don't have to care what men think anymore. It's we all need to understand how to have a mutual baseline level of respect for one another. Right. And I think unfortunately, historically, women haven't had a prominent role in society, you know, and even if they played a prominent role in society, we haven't viewed them as having a prominent role in society. And so as you have more pushes for female leadership, female executives, female representation, gender parity, gender equality, all of these different things, and even diversity and inclusion, kind of like in its in a different bucket, tangential, but related, I think that you know, you're starting to see more women entering the the workforce in these roles. And men historically have never had any repercussions for these behaviors. So it's almost like a lot of times people don't know that men don't know that they're wrong. Right. And so there is a huge sense of fear. And again, as I said, men are the majority in executive leadership, men are the majority in finance and investment and, and all of these other fields. And we need women to be in parity with that. But in order to do that, we need to empower men to start to reframe the way that they're looking at this and the way that they're viewing this, and the way that they have these interactions. So we do need to care what men think because there needs to be that baseline sense of responsibility and of respect. Well, and I was thinking, so we talked before about the Vantage Point program in terms of the kinds of scenarios you see and the kinds of options that you're given. Yeah. Um, is there also a training component where you teach people like, oh, by the way, this is a good option or these are strategies you could employ? In terms of management? So like when you're in that situation, do you yeah. also teach people what to do when they see this? Yeah. Or is it just yeah. sort of like, nope, got that wrong? No, no, absolutely. We do. We do. So we incorporate real-time feedback and you'll literally like receive a phone call from your mentor and your mentor says, hey, what was actually going on was a toxic work environment. And while this may look like it's okay, it actually typically creates a landscape that's pervasive for this kind of behavior. So if you see this, it's always best to speak up, whether it's to somebody else or to the person that you see it happening to, because you can play a role in stopping this. So historically, I would say sexual harassment training has very little respect. And you might even argue that HR has very little respect. Do you find that to be the case? Yes, historically, I would say that, you know, the way that we have previously looked at HR's function as 
it plays out in the overall landscape of a successful company or a successful business or as a department as a whole is that HR is almost the least important function within a company. And I would say that that's actually not true since starting this company and not only managing people, hiring people, but also having to work with HR for this past year, I have a newfound level of respect for HR because people operations, talent operations, employee engagement, it is vastly more difficult to deal with people's emotions than it is to write a complex algorithm or to make a design decision. And those are hard decisions to make, but imagine dealing you know, with people's emotions at scale. So, and, and your talent builds your culture and your culture builds your product. And so ultimately, I think that we need to reframe the way that we're looking at HR's function, because I would actually argue HR plays the biggest role within any company. And why is that? Because HR are going to be the ones who, again, are hiring the talent, are ensuring that they're engaged, ensuring that they're happy, figuring out how to take their talent and maximize it through effective management, through effective freedom in, in roles and functions. And also HR are going to be the ones who have to make very talented people work well together, mm. you know, and, and deal with a lot of these problems and these issues and people's emotions are nuanced, right? But an algorithm, it, it might be nuanced in what it can do, but it's ultimately just a line of code or a set of numbers or characters that create a desired outcome or result. And so ultimately, Emotions are evolving and emotions are ongoing and different people have different levels of EQ. So when you're bringing people who have really high IQ together, you have to make that EQ work no matter what level it's at. Mm. And that's what HR's job is. So that in and of itself is such a deep domain expertise that many people don't have. Gosh. No, and I mean... I once thought about this idea of people talk about the diversity of ideas Mm -hmm. being good. And like we talk about that on this podcast. But really... We need there to be a a fixed level on some qualities and then diversity on others. So like you're saying, when you hire people, you want them to all have, let's say, high IQs. Mm-hmm. So like that's the given. But then if you're hiring for just that, you're going to have variability in EQ. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you're saying that HR is a great sort of wrangler for like you yeah. hired everybody based on this one thing. But yeah. really, it's much more complex than that. Exactly. And I think that even when you go into EQ, you have varying facets, right? And so it's this person might be a really great communicator, but not that empathetic. This person might pick up on social cues really well, but they might not respond to management and leadership, you know, and authoritative directions. And those are all, again, so vastly complex and nuanced that any combination of those could play out in infinite ways, depending on how the combination is given in the person and their, you know, varying scale or level. And so HR's job is to essentially come in and assess this, right? And and figure out how can we create a collaborative environment that has the culture we want in order to build the product we want. I also like the idea of you making a hard sell to HR departments all over the country, like Morgan understands us. <laughs> we should use our software. <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, I do understand them now, you know, now that I've gotten, and I think one of the biggest things I've heard is that, you know, I've heard this from HR. HR is the last to get budget. And, and I've also have heard numerous times this exact premise that they're almost not as important in the company or they kind of come in and they shake their fingers, you know, and they berate you if you do something wrong. But HR wants to be seen as a partner with the employees. And so in order to do that, because HR is what enables companies to run effectively and to create, again, these collaborative environments amongst all of these different personality types, we need to empower HR, you know, with the positioning and with the tools that they need to do that. I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about, so the journey of an entrepreneur, right? It's always different than you think it's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to ask you, looking back on your first couple of years working on this, mm-hmm. what has been like a unique obstacle yeah. than you expected? Yeah. Maybe even domain specific. Yeah, that's interesting. So number one is actually hiring talent and people management. There's a very specific reason why I'm saying what I'm saying about HR, and it's because you can interview somebody around your values and you can interview them around their skills and you can ask them what kind of culture they want to work in. But until you've seen somebody in that very specific edge case environment and you see how they respond and you have to decide how that 
overall, you know, will influence and play out in the long term. Hiring is very hard and it's not something that's just been hard for us. I have mentors, you know, from companies that have raised well over 100 million and they've told stories about how they've had perfect candidates accept job interviews and then drop out. And so ultimately, a lot of those things aren't things that can be assessed in the interview process. And I think that ultimately, you know, you want a really talented team, but you also want people who are bought into the long term and people who have the qualities that you want your product to evoke. I'm hearing a second product in the works here (laughs) of like, okay, culture fit test. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, long-term where we see the technology going is being able to build out AI powered training environments where you could theoretically put somebody into a training environment and see how they respond real time and then assess their levels of, you know, decision-making criteria, confidence in their actions empathy for others, whatever it may be. And so we are actually looking at that. That's like a five-year goal for us, you know, because the technology is not where it needs to be. But ultimately, I think hiring is number one. And then number two is when you're building a product, you know, when you look at VR, we build as a software company. So we're built to have maximum customizations. You know, we're built to be able to deploy at scale. We're built in all of these ways. And it's nothing that's ever been done before. So a lot of times we're looking at the limitations and we're figuring out how we can break out of those confines to build towards our goal. And a lot of that's like, my engineers are incredible, but they'll come to me and they're like, I had to rebuild this from the ground up, but it finally does what we need it to do. You know? And so I think that you make a lot of assumptions from like the technology side of things of how things are going to be built, but you're not building modeling what anyone has done before. So an assumption is an assumption. So essentially it sounds like the hard part is being an innovator. Yeah, basically. It's like going where yeah. no one's gone before. <laughs> yeah, bas- basically, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so last question on sort of your history slash culture. So you've talked about how you grew up in the South mm-hmm. and how maybe that put you at a disadvantage. Um, I was just hoping we could unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I actually think it put me at an advantage, not a disadvantage. Unfortunately, We as a country are geographically isolated, so we're also very mentally isolated. And when you look at Europe, while Europe has its issues, a lot of children grow up there traveling to different countries from a very young age. They all learn three languages, you know, when they're in high school, middle school, whatever it may be. They're all very cultured and um, culturally aware. And yes, there are still problems there, you know, around similar issues and similar topics, but Ultimately, I think that we are very privileged to be isolated, and that has played out in the way that we've approached politics to the way that our pop culture has kind of prevailed. And so I think that growing up in the South was an advantage, but it was only an advantage because I was then able to juxtapose that with a very different viewpoint. And so that was able to show me kind of both sides of the coin and how reframing your mind and and shifting the way you think can shift the actions you take and how that can shift the society or the culture that you're in and the way that you interact with others. Well, and I think back to your earlier story about your Swedish Ethiopian friends. (laughs) So my my husband's actually Swedish. I know that there's a lot of diversity in adoption there. Um, Why do you think that had such a big impact on you? Well, first and foremost, she was my first friend who wasn't Caucasian. And that in and of itself should say something. I think that as we were friends, I saw a lot of things that I didn't necessarily realize were wrong. You know, like we would go out and we would go to a bar and she'd be like, you know, I'm Swedish. And everybody would be like, no, you're not. Let me see your ID. She has gorgeous hair and it's really long. And everyone would reach out and want to touch it because they would want to feel the texture of it. And that's wrong. And I think that seeing that and then having somebody who has experienced so many different things and had personal experience with what I made the joke about was able to really put it into perspective that, you know, again, these things, these issues do happen. You know, they don't happen in isolation. It's not that you're only blind to them if you want to be. And I also think that that's the advantage I gain by growing up in the South, because now I can then relate to people who have some of these views. And I can say, you know, I used to have the same view as you, but again, you're only blind to something if you want to be. It's interesting too, that you essentially have that unique value of empathy for people who 
don't have empathy, maybe. Yeah. So like you can understand what it's like to not understand. Like, yeah. What's the big deal here? Like, so you touched yeah. your hair. That's yeah. not a crime. Yeah. Or even, you know, things beyond that. Because when I came back from that trip, I was a completely different person. Like I, I could get into it in great detail. For instance, um, Governor Pat McCroy was the one to pass laws banning individuals who identified as bi, gay, transsexual from entering bathrooms that they self-identified with. And that was like a huge, you know, it was like the first law of its kind passed in the United States. It caused a lot of backlash, but there were also a lot of people in support for it, obviously, because it was passed in North Carolina. I actually did campaigning for Governor Pat McCrory when I was in university before I took this trip to the point where like I went to personal dinners that he privately curated, you know, and I was actually actively campaigning for him and and helping him in his campaign. And so to go from that to where I am now shows you really how far I've moved on, on the issues and, and the views I have. And so when I moved back, everybody was like, wait, you know, you didn't vote for Trump. I thought you were a Republican (laughs) or wait, Morgan, like you don't believe in this. You used to always say that you did, but it was even down to like gay marriage. You know, I remember I was in Italy and I said something, I was like, oh, I don't believe in gay marriage. And my friends who are European were like, why? And I was like, wait, I don't actually know. No, and I think that's the the benefit of a diversity of opinions is yeah. is that you get to question things that you assumed were true. Exactly. Even if you don't change your mind about it, it's exactly. just to, to shine a light on like, oh, yeah. wait a minute. Why? Exactly. And I, and I think that, you know, ultimately I do have friends who have opinions that are different from mine and I have friends who have opinions that align. But ultimately, I think that your job as an individual is to take the opinions you have and compare that against both sides to figure out and and formulate that opinion, whether it reinforces the opinion you have or it doesn't. But we are equipped with the ability to think critically and to analyze situations. And so if we don't think critically and analyze situations and analyze the opinions we have and consistently evaluate as times change and as things change, then we are doing a disservice. Well, and I think this is a good point to jump into our sort of final round of questions. So You've talked a lot about how you've changed your mind in the past. I'm wondering if there's something you maybe have changed your mind about in the last year or two. In the past year or two, within the context of you know my company, I've actually had the pleasure of working with companies that had really bad stories break about their pervasive sexual harassment or their workplace or you know whatever it may be. Is this on the side of someone selling them software or on the side of meeting them at events for entrepreneurs? Both. Okay. Yeah, both, actually. I've gotten to know a lot of people who have either their companies have been sued or they've been sued for sexual harassment, you know, ironically in both environments. And in none of the times was it, you know, me approaching them. And I think before when I was starting my company, it was like, well, you did this, you're wrong and it's bad. But then when I was like, okay, well... Let me try and be a little open-minded in the sense of sit down and have a conversation and ask some hard-hitting questions and try and dig down to to truly understand, right? I understand what it's like to go through that, but I want to understand why this would happen in a workplace or why somebody would do something like this. And what I've realized is that a lot of times, surprisingly, when this happens, people are so not adept at dealing with it, that it's almost like a deer in headlights where somebody can't, for instance, like manage a bad employee. And then that bad employee says something. And then, you know, all of a sudden you have this toxic culture and then like, and the toxic culture is in part due to the founder. The founder has a really great relationship with like one of the women and it's a friendship, but then like it's taken out of context and there aren't boundaries. And then like things play out in these negative ways, you know, and, and it's inarguably negative. But then when, you know, the person who's accused is stepping back from that and kind of like reeling over what happens, they realize, wow, I did play a role in this, but this wasn't how I thought it was going to play out. And wow, this has such a negative impact, not just for me, but on the other person. And I can't believe I hurt this person so much that they would do this to me. But then once you have legal involved in anything, you're very limited in what you can actually say to the other party or in public. And so a lot of times that limits 
people from making public statements or public apologies or apologizing at all, which has an equally negative impact. And so when you actually speak to people on the other side of the fence and you realize like, wow, a lot of these people do want to apologize or a lot of these people do take accountability for some of this and they literally can't do that publicly, then it kind of reframes the way that you view all of this. And and it kind of like reframes the way that you view both sides because it's really painful. It's very painful to go through that, but it's also very painful to hurt somebody and not be able to take accountability and to have your life impacted by your actions and not be able to own up to that. Wow, that's interesting. What is the view that's widely held that you just aren't totally convinced by? So my answer would probably be gentrification of cities, right? And so I think that as we see cities developing, a lot of people think that building up these cities has a positive impact on all of the individuals because all of a sudden you have better schools, you have better arts and culture and, you know, more housing and whatever it may be. And it has a great impact for the middle tier. But what you actually see, if you're not a part of that middle tier, the middle class America, is that in communities with a lot of poverty or like a really low economic status, those individuals are then getting pushed out. And a lot of times they don't have anywhere to go. It's actually further institutionalizing a lot of these problems where they have inaccessibility to education and then they're less likely to actually ever be able to get out of poverty because now all of a sudden the house that they could afford, they can no longer afford and they can't even afford to live in the city. So where do they go to like to a city with even worse education? And so I think that a lot of times we do things thinking that they have positive impact, but it's all filtered by the glasses we're viewing the world by, you know, and so I think that we're actually doing a disservice to many populations in some of these actions. And before we move forward with a lot of what we're doing, we should be looking at how we're building those populations into the overall conversation. So essentially, it sounds like we might think we're doing something good, but only when we're looking at it through a a pretty narrow lens. Exactly. So on Innovation for All, we love to talk to people at the intersection of innovation, so technology, business entrepreneurship, and social impact. Mm -hmm. And clearly you fit square in the middle of that intersection, that overlap. Um, Who are two other people you think might be interesting to speak with on the podcast? Yeah, that's really, really interesting. So I would say number one would actually be, she's a mentor of mine, a really good friend, Shivani Soria. And she is the female I was, you know, referencing earlier who has raised over a hundred million for her company, solo female founder. You know, I actually went to her when I was fundraising. I was like, I don't think I can do it. You know, I don't see any other solo female founders. She was like, look at me. What she's doing right now is she's basically trying to take control of credit scoring and of people's credit profiles, but in developing countries. Mm -hmm. And she just got a strategic investment from PayPal. So, you know, what she's doing is obviously (laughs) affecting many people. I think she would be a really great person to speak with. She's Los Angeles based. And then the second one would be Samir Mansur. So he, you know, was the person who asked me is this a company or is this a hobby? And he started LiveSafe. And so LiveSafe was basically a mobile safety reporting platform. So if there's like an active shooter in the building, you quite literally press a button and it alerts and and it has like pre-built in almost like a set of processes and, and people that it notifies and it notifies active responders. It notifies people who can come on site and um, provide emergency medical services. And so they are actually working and deployed out across like 200 organizations, universities, government agencies, et cetera. And he started it alongside his co-founder because his co-founder was a victim of one of the shootings, the university shootings. So I think that that can have pretty profound impacts as well. Wow. Those are both really awesome suggestions. So if people want to learn more about you or Vantage Point, where can they find you online? www.trytryvantage.com. And how about you personally? At T-H-E Morgan, M-O-R-G-A-N, Mercer, M-E-R-C-E-R. That's Twitter. (laughs) Cool. And we'll we'll put those in show notes. Last but not least, what would an ask be that you might have for the audience? I would really encourage the audience to evaluate the way that you individually or your company is addressing some of these problems. And if you think that there's a better way you could be addressing some of these problems, whether it's in training or whatever else, I would encourage you to look at potentially adopting new solutions to those problems. 
Morgan Mercer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I hope you're enjoying today's episode. If you are, you can help us out by visiting Innovation for All on iTunes and leaving us a review. See you soon. Oh, 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 oh,